Jeff Smith, and welcome to The Secrets of Success. Throughout my life, I've been fascinated by one single question, and it's how do successful people become successful? What is it that makes that big difference in our lives? Over the last 40 years, I've interviewed rich people, famous people, and many millionaires to find out their secrets of success and to share their secrets here with you. Of course, success is not always measured in money. And in these programs, I'm looking at many different success stories from people in all walks of life. I want to find out what makes them tick how they overcame adversity when times get tough. And I want to extract those magical nuggets of wisdom so that you too can implement the secrets of success into your own life. In this episode, I'm talking with Michael Diederich. He's the improv guy. Michael has spent his whole life on stage. He's performed most of his youth in California, studied musical theatre at Wagner College in New York, and had a brilliant career over the decades in the Netherlands. However, after many years of theatre productions and tours, Michael still wanted more variation. And improv was the answer. Improv being improvisation, of course. He began performing with Boom Chicago in 1993, and in 2006 became a full-time improv actor. That is a real skill. During his time, he then gave thousands of workshops, helped them to improve their syllabus, created their public speaking program, and helped them to develop interaction, their highly successful improv training for children with autism. So a worthy guy as well. But after many years, Michael realized he was working extremely hard for a tiny portion of the profits and was doing the majority of the work himself. So some encouragement from his friends and mentors, Michael decided to take the risk in 2018 and go freelance. Now he's paddling his own boat, his own business, and he's now working even harder. But instead of a slice of the pie, of course, he gets the whole pie. This is going to be an interview where we're finding out who we are and how we can expand using the skills of improv or improvisation to expand our boundaries of where we think we are. So let's bring in the amazing man himself and welcome him to the show. Welcome, Michael Diederich. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for the brilliant intro. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you. Now, it's great to see you too. A little bit of disclosure here. I mean, you are looking wonderful as ever. It's wonderful to see you. And I'm so happy to have you on the show here today, Michael, because we have shared the platform on a few times and you were MC and have introduced me on stage. And That's correct. Absolutely one of the best ever. And I remember we were on the QE2 and you're saying, hey, Jeff, uh, you're now about to come on stage. What's your keynote all about? And I explained it to you quite briefly. And you said, OK, 
and you just walk on stage and bang this incredible introduction. The audience go wild and I think, oh man, I've got to live up to that. <laughs> so, so that was my revenge. Oh. <laughs> so it's, it's wonderful to have you here. I can't wait to find out about your amazing work, what improv is. But we, before we do all of that, I want to find out more about you, Michael. So three questions to get us going here. You can tackle them how you wish. So where were you born? What was life like for you as a child? And what were your dreams and aspirations as you were growing up? Uh, great. Well, originally I was born in uh, California, in Southern California, uh, 1969. Uh, and I grew up in an interesting family because my parents had divorced before I was a year old. So there's something about the American court system that you'd assume that if my parents divorced that I would go with my mother. Uh, because in 99.9% .9 of the cases, that's the way it used to be. Uh, but I actually got assigned to my father. Um, and that's because my biological mother, God bless her, um, yeah, not very good mother. She, I mean, later on our relationship became better than as a child. But I come from a from my mother's side of the family, a showbiz family. Uh, my grandfather is the former of the Modern Airs, uh, Paula Kelly and the Modern Airs. They sang with the Glenn Miller Orchestra. Uh, they have the first uh, gold record ever. Uh, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Chattanooga Choo Choo, uh, Pennsylvania 6500. <coughs> um, I got a girl in Kalamazoo. So uh, the daughters as well, they were on the Ed Sullivan, uh, Ed, Sullivan, uh, Ed Sullivan show as the Kelly sisters. So that side of the family was like the showbiz side. There was a lot of partying. There was a lot of drinking. And um, <laughs> uh, so... When my father remarried, so I always say to people, I have a biological mother and a mother because what you would traditionally call a stepmother, she raised me as long as my memory goes back. So she's always been my uh, mother. But as I grew up, my talent for singing began to show itself. I was very extroverted. I got leads in the school plays. I was in the choir, and I wanted to do more and more. And I was kind of upset because... In my family, it seemed that all the kids were supported in all the things that they wanted to do, and I felt I was not supported. Like, you know, if my sister wanted to be on a soccer team. They would bring her to practices and drive her to meets even in different states. And if I wanted to be in a show, then I had to arrange someone to pick me up and take me and do all of that stuff myself. And I couldn't understand it. And it wasn't until years later my father had a tragic accident and became a quadriplegic. And suddenly he wasn't this big bull of a man who just walked around. It was like, now your only choice is to be emotional and vocal. So it's a terrible thing that happened to him, but it was one of the best things that happened to our relationship because we finally talked about so many things. And one of those was every time I would perform or get on stage or sing. It reminded him of my mother and that side of the family and their irresponsibility and their party lifestyle and the drinking. And he didn't want that for me. But in later years, he became a huge support because he said, you know, I supported all the kids in what they wanted to do. And of the four kids, you're the only one doing exactly what they said. 
they wanted to do. And we worked against you. So um, that's kind of what formed me. Uh, now, as much as I love my family, I do come from a bit of a conservative family. And as a a gay performing artist, I am, uh, yeah, by nature, a little bit more liberal. So when it came time to go to school, I looked uh, at the other coast, New York, to kind of like get some distance and explore myself. And later when I had the chance to go to the Netherlands for six months, I was like, oh, that's like the liberal capital of the world. So why don't I go there and explore? And that six-month journey is now almost 30 years ago. I've spent more than half my life uh, in the Netherlands. I took to the Netherlands like a fish to water. Um, I wrote a journal on the night that I arrived, and I looked back at it uh, later. And as pretentious as it sounds for a 23-year-old boy, the chapter that I wrote the night that I arrived said, my soul is at home. And um, in a way, it turned out to be true because, yeah, I'm still here after all these years and yeah, I don't have an intention to leave. And you knew your soul was at home the day that you arrived there? It was. We, we came in on a train. We were talking. Uh, I stepped out of the tram and uh, our, our the place where we were staying was on the other side. Uh, so we had to turn 180 degrees and the tram drove away and we were on this bridge from a canal in Amsterdam, the Prinsengracht, one of the larger canals, and it was snowing in the Netherlands. The sun was going down in the west, so I could see the west. I could see the western tower, the Vesterkerk, the western church, sun setting. And it was cold enough that the canals were frozen over and people were skating on the canals. It was like this magical vision. And I just remember standing there and looking at it and feeling at peace. Uh, and it wasn't until years later that I could really describe it. There's a Dutch painter, his name is Anton Peek, and he painted these kind of scenes. So now when Dutch people ask me, you know, what made you stay here? I said, it was, I was captured in the life of Anton Peek. I felt like I was in that magical uh, painting. I, it, maybe it's something spiritual. I don't know, Jeff, because I really had no experience with the people yet or the culture. But there was just something in my body, like almost a magnetic feeling, like there was no resistance or pressure. I saw that picture of just like, I, I stood there and I go, this is where I belong. And I, I can't explain it in any other way uh, except to go 30 years later. The fact that I'm still here either means I'm a fool or I was right. <laughs> Amazing. I wonder what causes that feeling. Another, another question for another day. Yeah. So you've spoken about your biological mother and her background, which is yeah. obviously the DNA has traveled across and flowing through your veins. Yes. What about your father prior to the accident? What, what was his thing? Uh, my father, he was a, he was a great father in the way that he, you know, being uh, raised uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, military as well, uh, strict parents, but he was a real provider uh, and he took care of his family, even when that meant there were times when he wasn't around a lot because he was working so hard. Um, when I was 14, he transplanted the entire family to Northern California. And I found out later he'd done his research and of the, I think, 50 counties in uh, uh, California, he looked and he's like, where are the best school systems? Where's the best place to raise kids? And it was Nevada County, which is the old gold country. And he moved us there. 
And uh, unfortunately, then work became scarce. So he was actually, he, he could also fly a plane. So he would get up very, very early on Monday mornings, you know, literally Sunday in the middle of the night. And he would drive uh, for a couple years to San Francisco, which was three and a half hours away. Uh, he would work for eight hours, drive home, eat dinner, and go to bed. Uh, and then later, uh, he found work in L.A. again. So he would drive uh, a half hour to our local airport, and he would fly a single motor airplane to Los Angeles and stayed with my grandmother, his mother-in-law, and would work there for the week. And he did that so he could provide for his family. Now, of course, as a child growing up, you kind of feel like, you know, my dad's never there for me. My dad's another mayor. And just like I said with the accident, you kind of sometimes learn lessons later in life. I realized he was there for me in ways that I didn't consider. The fact that he provided this beautiful town where theater was thriving. Uh, and I did, I learned so much there. Uh, so many of my musical and theatrical mentors, I learned uh, so much from in high school and afterwards. So, yeah, you can say, was your father there for me? Yeah, physically, maybe not all the time, but boy, I could not have done it without him. He he did indoor fire protection, which are the people who put like sprinklers into high-rise buildings for fire protection. And uh, after I got done with college, he got a, an accident at work. He tripped over some poorly laid uh, cables and he broke his back. Uh, now, of course, we're talking about America, so because the cables were laid incorrectly and he tripped over them, he sued and my parents became millionaires uh, overnight. So they sold everything. They bought like a fifth wheel and they traveled the country for eight years and just looked around, met people and decided where do we want to live? And they ended up in Tennessee. And that's where he lived until the day he died. And my mom's still there. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Cool. So you're in the Netherlands, your soul has landed. What was the plan for your career then? What were your dreams and aspirations that night? Um, I was there with a group of four people and we were meeting a fifth friend of ours. We had done a play that we put together ourselves. I played a role and directed it. Uh, it was called The Monkey Chronicles. And it was a piece about what would happen if the if like the apes of the planet finally started speaking to us and we realized they had reached a point of development where, oh, these primates are now wanting to take their place. And it was a real battle of like good and evil, liberal and conservative, uh, uh, fact and fiction. Um, and we played this in California and it was such a success that we said, you know what, let's go to the Edinburgh Festival, one of the biggest theater festivals in the world. And our first plan was, let's get to, like, Central Europe and find a place where we can start developing some, you know, comedy sketch shows and perform these pieces. So the five of us lived on this houseboat in Amsterdam uh, for a year, and uh, we started producing shows. And the ironic part is we never went to the Edinburgh Festival. We just <laughs> started performing yeah. and developing and, and started living our life. And after a year, we were getting ready to leave. And uh, I got a job in a nightclub putting together this interactive theater show. Like, what would happen if you showed up at a fancy nightclub and there was this crazy, bombastic owner from Texas with a loud mouth and her 
her shy, like autistic sister. And there was a, a drag queen who was a waitress who wanted to be a star and an American couple from New York who sat in the middle and talked really loud. And people come in and they would go, why did we have to come tonight? And then after about <laughs> 10 or 15 minutes, you started realizing, wait a minute, this is not real. It's a show. So for the two and a half hours while people were eating before they got there, their, uh, you know, their, their big spectacle show. Um, that's what we did. And I put that show together, uh, and ended up working there for two and a half years. Uh, during that time, I learned the language. Uh, I can't tell you what the joke was, but I remember the moment for me that, uh, was the, the trigger for me to definitely stay in Holland was, you know, that show was about improvisation as well. Uh, cause we were just interacting with the people. I'd bring them food. I was actually working as I was the I was the drag queen waitress, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I was actually working with the wait staff, and after six months, they realized, you know, I'd waited table for years. They started cutting me in the tips because they realized I was actually working really hard. But so when I would bring people bread and drinks and food, I would talk to them. It's like, oh yeah, Michelle Rich, Broadway bitch, and um, yeah, my dream is to be in the show. So I'm hoping that you know the leading lady trips or whatever, and I got to sing songs and stuff like that. But one night I met a table and uh, they spoke only Dutch and I, you know, I'd been learning, slowly learning Dutch, but I made a joke in Dutch that night and, you know, I couldn't tell you what it was, but I remember this table of six people just burst into laughter and especially as an American, you know, we're not known for our language skills. <laughs> There was, I mean, we barely speak our own language, let yeah. alone any others. Yeah, you've, um, you've made a good job of trashing English, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, we can get into that as well when people go, why is why is it not Leicester Square? Don't tell me it's Leicester Square. There's too many letters in there, you know? Uh, <laughs> why all these U's everywhere? Why the extra U's? Uh, but that's, that's a discussion for another day. But the fact that I had made a joke just off the cuff in a second language was magical to me and uh, then I made it my point to like really start studying the language and uh, two and a half years into that experience a casting director from Yope from the Enda which is like our Cameron McIntosh the big musical producer saw me and said you should audition for Evita have you got experience and I was like girl you're talking to the right person this is what I've been dreaming to do so the fact that I wanted a musical career and, you know, when I was in New York, I thought it was too busy there. So that's why I didn't stay in New York. I, I thought the life of New York's going to kill me. So it was always my dream to be on Broadway. But when I got there, I thought I won't be able to do this. So it's funny how the universe laid out this different path for me. And then, you know, it's like the secret. I, I, I knew what I wanted to do and I kept putting it out there. And the universe said, well, how about here? And so from 1996 till 2006, I had a very, very uh, exciting career in a musical theater and uh, absolutely loved every minute of being on stage. But yeah, it's kind of hard sometimes. Like, you know, I did Saturday Night Fever and I sang Disco Inferno 475 times. So I cannot listen to the Bee Gees anymore without yeah, getting, I guess, you know. I guess. And, and every night you have to perform it like it's the first time, you know. Uh, and there was just something about I love performing. I love being in musicals. But like when you direct, you get the show ready, you make it perfect and you go, ah, fly, be free and then go on to the next one. And then they play it. 400 times, you know? So I was like, what, what's, 
what's what's going to get me on stage and allow me to keep developing myself and not feel constrained that I have to keep repeating the same thing and just like the secret again boom chicago this uh improv group that's now been almost 30 years in the netherlands a chance came up and I started working for them and I was like oh being on stage every night and doing some sketches but the rest is improvised and it was like every night creating theater so again um i think part of part of what i've done has to do with luck but i think part of it has to do with i do believe in this energy of the universe which is if you put out there what you want and you you know you don't try and constrain it or or limit it then the right things come your way when you have the right attitude right i will, that's what i want to come on to so i do want to speak about improv yeah But there's something about musical theater that i want to ask you about mm -hmm. but you've said a couple of times i put things out there uh, broadway wasn't not right i put it out the universe delivered you said it again and then you just ended the statement by saying i'm a believer in this yeah so <clears throat> when you say you put stuff out there yeah what's the actual process that you went through You know, it's two-sided. Part of it is internal, which is just keep like believing in yourself and knowing. Uh, part of it is also internal, which is uh, whenever new musicals would come out, I would see them or I would study them. I would stay well-versed. When I would uh, go out to like see musicals, I would talk to people. I wouldn't be pushy and be like, oh, do you have a role for me? That's not the way to do it. But show your knowledge. And when you met people like this casting director to go, oh, I do do musical theater. I would love to audition for you. Um, I don't think she was there for, you know, by coincidence. It was like at that time, it's like my Dutch was good enough that I could be in a Dutch production. So, you know, Jeff, there is something mystical, like what's your process? Putting it out there is I keep, keep talking about it. Tell people what your passion is, is one of the, the first things. It's, it's like, you know, you as the KPI guy, the first time I heard that I was meeting you, it was like the KPI guy. For me, as like an event host, I was like, oh, KPIs. I've heard about KPIs. I didn't understand them, but I was like, oh, it's one of those things. And you were so passionate about it that it made me like excited about it. And um, now I'm a better host because I try and find as well like, hey, it might not be my technical topic or business topic, but I'm the one who has to get the audience excited about it before that person comes on. What is it about it that I can find exciting or about the speaker themselves? So it's this idea of talking to people. And the same with you is, you know, it's not always, you know, so putting it out there also has to do with the cyclical nature of things. So when I met you, I wasn't just talking about improv and just what I want. I was asking you, what do you do? Oh, how interesting. Uh, I gave uh, like public speaking trainings when we met as well. And then it comes back on your path that now Jeff Smith is saying, hey, would you want to be a guest on my show? Which is like, oh, great. It's a great chance to meet with you again. It's a great chance to get exposure again. And it's a great chance that, I mean, already we've, in preparation for this, talked about some really excited things that I go, so we're like, what's putting it out there? This is putting it out there as well. Uh, people go, oh, an interview. Yeah, this, I'm going to spend two hours of my time uh, and I'm not getting paid for it. You, I am getting paid. I'm getting paid and I, who knows how that's going to happen. Someone's going to see this 
Someone's going to want to read a book. Someone's going to want to hire me. Uh, I'm going to be, you know, you're going to be mentoring me on some projects as well. It's, it's already worth it because I'm putting myself out there and I'm talking about what I love. Be passionate about what it is, whether it's improv or KPIs, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I want to revisit our time in Dubai because you said something that was really quite revealing because when we very first met, did not know each other, and you said to me, hey, Jeff, what do you do? I said, oh, I speak about key performance indicators. And it was, all right, okay, next. <laughs> it, it was just, and I get that. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, and then other speakers had their, their talk. And then I was asked to do something special, a short training session yeah. to help with Uh, how speakers write their speech and the length yeah. of time, things like that. And you were sitting right at the back. It's like, yeah, um, yeah, I'll just be out of the way. And then I, I started speaking, working my magic. The room came alive. You were alive. And it was like, wow, you were asking questions. And then things changed for you, which you have just said, which... Fills me with delight, Michael, because not only not only did we share about how KPI in that instance affect that part of your life, yeah. but it also affected you as a presenter and speaker and which it did. And that's why I can confidently say because we went from there to the QE2. Yeah. You introduced me on stage on the QE2, and it yeah. was, oh, my goodness, the, the passion that I had, you had. So it was wonderful to see that growth. And then we went on to the World Trade Center. You did the same again. Yeah. And I think it's wonderful that you've recognized that. Yeah. And, and, and enhanced your own skills, which is absolutely wonderful. And there's yeah. a... Yeah. Yeah, when we met, it's funny because we were surrounded. That was the interesting thing. I was also, you know, I'd done what I'd done for years, and I'm, uh, you know, doing public speaking trainings and helping people. And now Ernesto's asked me to be there, and I'm here with all of these speakers, and all of them have very alpha personalities. And I had this feeling like Ernesto wants me to do this two-hour training, but I had this feeling around me like, What's this kid going to teach me that I don't already know? So I already had like a defensive stance, unfortunately. And I've learned to, I've learned to like let go of that because that was a false expectation. Same thing when I asked you, what do you do? KPI? Oh, okay. Great. Next. Let's, let's find someone else, you know, to talk about. Uh, because it just, I, I didn't realize and I made a, a false assumption like this was going to be boring. You know, uh, and also it's funny it's to see your personality. You're like me. I say when I'm on stage, I don't lie, but I'm Michael Plus. It's me with a little bit more. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's something I try and teach people, like how to turn on enthusiasm with how do you be enthusiastic without acting enthusiastic? It, there's a difference between acting and being. And when you get on stage and started talking, that was the magic, which was like, wait a minute, this isn't the guy I talked to a minute ago. This is extra. <laughs> and the you you and i have something in common which is we speak passionately about what we're talking about so once i'd seen you i was excited as well and as a host i go 
it's an honor for me. I think I even said that in my introduction. It's an honor for me to introduce this next speaker. Uh, and I think I even said it in like a comical faction. It's like he takes a subject with KPIs, which you probably would think, and turns it into something you have to know. You know, I can't remember exactly what I said, but it's funny because it was based on that short little interview. So when you give me credit for like, wow, you whipped this thing out. I did, but it was all based on what you told me. And it made a difference because I'd seen you already. So I don't make assumptions anymore. Sometimes I'll meet, you know, an IT guy and he goes, yeah, I'm going to talk about, you know, power transference and he's low energy and I don't understand, but it's like, okay, tell me, talk to me, tell me about it because I don't know what's going to happen when he gets out there. I'm, I I can't. So yeah, th but that was a va the valuable lesson I learned. The other one was everyone's got something to learn. And after I gave that two hour workshop, I realized just like you said, that workshop I gave in Dubai was magic. Cause I was like these alphas before within five minutes, they were, eating out of my hand going, wait, I've never seen this before. Well, oh, that's true. They started making mistakes right off the bat, which is how my whole workshop's designed. Uh, and I was like, Michael, have a little bit more confidence in yourself. This is what you do. You help people become better speakers. Even world-class speakers can become better. You know, no one's perfect. And yeah, I learned a lot. And, you know, I'm very grateful to uh, Ernesto uh, for all the great people I've met, uh, including you. You know, I still have great connections with so many people today. I people, I write their intros. I help them with their voiceovers uh, uh, for whatever it is. Yeah, that whole speak in Dubai was magical. Yeah, well, I have the blessing of seeing you transform through that position. And it's just been a delight to watch and continue to see. So improv, we're going to get onto improv in a moment. Before yeah. we do that, I want to go back to your theatre days because it forms part of who you are. Like all of us, we go through journeys. So early on, you wanted to sing. You were on stage. You sang. You were in Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah. And then something happened. Yeah, on the final performance in 2006 of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, it was an emotional night. It was a very heavy tour. Our director, his, his PhD that he wrote was about the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. So he knew that show inside and out. He actually had contact with Andrew Lloyd Webber because he wanted to change some things around. Um, for example, I don't know, I don't know how to love him. The probably most famous song from Mary Magdalene from that show. Uh, he, we did it in an acapella arrangement, arrangement. So the whole cast was off stage singing oohs and the, and she sang it acapella to make it as like naked as possible. And at first Andrew was like, uh, there's no way. And then we recorded it and sent it to him and he goes, yeah, okay. Uh, and one of the other things that was changed was, uh, I, at that, at that point I'd been directing for about four years and I didn't need to be on stage as often. Uh, I didn't want to really be in a tour or in a regular production, but there were some roles that I go, if ever I get a chance to play like the mother in Hairspray or Thenardier in Les Miserables or King Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar, I'll take it. So I auditioned for Jesus Christ Superstar because I was like, I got to I gotta go for this. Uh and it's interesting because the final callback was on my birthday and I was there at 10 in the morning and at four, I still 
hadn't sang. And I was getting angry because we'd gone from like 50 people and we we're now to last 12. And I said to the guy, it's my birthday. It's like, do you know when I'm going to get to go? And he said, Mike, I knew the guy. He said, Michael, look around. He says, who else do you think here is for King Herod? And I looked and I was like, oh, there's Jesus and Judas. And I go, I don't know who else. He goes, there's no one else here. The director wants you, but the producer has to approve you. So just chill out and you're probably going to get this role. And I was like, okay, I got it. Uh, what he changed about it was uh, typically King Herod is the, like the campy, funny part of the show. Like after all of this suffering that Jesus goes through before we go and, you know, whip him and end to the end of the show, you have this big showy Broadway number. Our director didn't want that. So he turned Herod into like this schizophrenic maniac who was trying to do magic tricks that weren't working because he's like, well, Christ is the, you know, the magician, the miracle worker. So I was doing all these magic tricks that kept failing. But to show the schizophrenia, I would uh, go, uh, you are the Christ. I was singing country western, and then it went into a, a to prove to me that you're a fool. It was like a, a Viennese waltz. And then uh, it turned into a rap, and then it turned into heavy metal. So this arrangement just kept jumping from style to style. And it was a great way of showing that Herod, you know, was schizophrenic. But that heavy metal part was just screaming up at the top. And the last show, I'm up there singing that high G. And I hear this <clears throat> sound on the last note. And I stopped singing. And I was like, well, thank God I made it through that. And uh, finished the show. And I, <clears throat> the whole night <clears throat> afterwards, I'm like coughing a little bit. And we're in the bus on the way home. And I cough into my hand. I see blood. And I'm like, oh, this cannot be good. So made an appointment next morning, went to the ear, nose, throat doctor, and I discovered that I had ripped my vocal cords. I had pushed too hard. And uh, he said, you need to not, don't talk for the next three weeks, and we're going to see what happens. And uh, I waited. Three weeks later, I went back, and he said, well, the good news is it's healed. Uh, uh, we don't have to do anything, but you have massive scar tissue on your vocal cords. And my vocal cords did not were not as flexible and they wouldn't close correctly. So suddenly I had no voice support. My range had went down and he said, chances are you, you probably won't be able to continue as a professional singer. And that broke my heart. I mean, I thought my life was over. Um, so talking about secrets of success, one of the things is, uh, interestingly enough, not giving up, which is I went through depression. Of course, I was very, very sad. And I said, you know what? What do I love? I love musicals, but I never said, is it that I love singing? Is it I love performing? I love all those things, but I love musicals. Why don't I write one? Why don't I direct one? You know, why don't I teach people how to do it? I can do that. So it took me about two years to like, get back on a horse, a slightly different horse. But one of those things is sometimes you go, well, you're not destined to do maybe exactly this or something happens where you're not available. There are new passions out there. There are new forms of it as well. So losing my voice is still probably one of the most tragic things that's happened in my life. Uh, but I couldn't let it defeat me. So yeah, uh, I'm still out there. I'm still successful. I'm doing still different things. I'm on stage. So I'm still, I can sing, but I mean, I can't sing like Broadway belt stuff. 
uh, anymore. I just don't have the range for it. So I was like, I have to perform within my own parameters, my own limitations. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the, the, the tragic, the tragedy that happened to my voice. And, um, I had to deal with it and I am. So, yeah, I think you make light of this, Michael, because I had to deal with it. I was sad. I mean, it was depression, right? I'm, the, the reason why I'm making light of it, Jeff, is yeah. I can actually feel the tears welling up in me because I, I, when I speak about this really open-heartedly, uh, and it's not like I'm, I'm lying to you. It's more like I'm protecting myself that this doesn't turn into a, 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 a cry fest. But yeah, it was a. Tr I mean, it. I, I said to myself, part of me died that day because even under the shower, singing under the shower, such joy. And that that part of me died, that my career was over. The thing that I love to do, the thing that I moved to Holland for and learned a new language for and worked my ass off to get leading roles that when I got to the callback, they didn't want to see anyone else, just me, that I went, wow, that's pretty awesome that they're he's so convinced he's only going to introduce one person. And then for it to end on something like, I'm, I, I sang so hard and so loud, this terrible, uh, and again, it's not, was it, was it because I used my voice incorrectly? Was it because the tour was too long? Was I tired? Did I push too hard that night? Who knows what happened? It, it's not the why it's what happens afterward that became important. The consequences, uh, the one good news I can say is in April next year, I'm going to Germany because there is a new laser surgery where they can, uh, remove scar tissue and soften it and kind of like I, again i don't understand the whole process that's why i have to go but it's like they're recreating tissue as well so they can put like the stretch back into it for me and an opera singer i know he went and had the procedure done and it saved his career so there's a secret glimmer of hope oh. in me that maybe in six months i might have a procedure that i'll be able to sing again i'm 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 not putting all my eggs in one basket and I'm not going to go, Oh, I'm going to stop improvisation. I'm going to sing again, but just to sing under the shower mm. or at a, at a, when I'm directing and I'm trying to explain something to someone and be able to do that, that would make me so happy, but mm. it's not that I'm unhappy. And again, you're absolutely right. I was in deep, dark depression. I started, I started smoking. Um, I started doing uh, drugs. I became very, very antisocial for a few years. Uh, and then, yeah, at a certain point, it was like, but yeah, now I'm, now I'm killing the rest of me. Yeah, this part of me died. But what about the rest? I'm not nurturing anything else. So, yeah, eventually I dug myself out of that pit. Okay. Michael, there could be someone listening now who's there. What can you say to them to help? Like I said, I, I can't speak for where they are, but for me, this was my singing and being in musicals was my reason for existence. And it will be hard. It will be dark, whatever it is. It's, I think it's also like maybe an athlete having an injury and learning them. They'll, they'll never be able to be in their sport again. But then after going through depression and after surviving it, realizing I can be a trainer. 
I can be a spokesperson. I can be a commentator at the Olympics is there are edges to what we do. So it's like, I still am very much part of musical doing masterclasses, writing, translating Dutch musicals into English, uh, helping all these young performers at school become better and get jobs. Like I said, I'm directing a piece next year and it was so great for me to go three ex students of mine showed up to that audition. And I was just so proud to watch them going, wow, you've gotten even better then. So when, when you can't pursue a dream for whatever reason it is, that's the magic about dreams. It's like, you know, every night we dream and we have a different dream, for example, and you can choose a different dream. I think that's the realization. It's coming to the acceptance. No matter how much I wanted it, I'm not going to be able to sing again. So if I just sit there and go, oh, I can't sing, I can't sing, I'm never going to sing again, of course that's going to happen. And of course you're going to go through that. And of course I did that. But at a certain point, you're either going to get stuck in that ruck or you're going to have to change your attitude and go, okay, I can't do this, but what can I do? And that's what put me back on the road to success. That's beautiful, Michael. You put a tear to my eye there. Uh, well, you asked the right question and you made me, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm also, <laughs> I'm welled up right now. I can't even see myself on the screen uh, because you asked the question. And, and that's, again, the magic of uh, knowing you which is you dug deeper and you didn't let me get away with, uh, with just throwing that answer away and made me, I mean, I'm not afraid of crying. I'm, I'm not afraid of showing my emotions, but I was like, Oh, is this what I want this to be about? And I think you made me go, well, yeah, maybe it's important that this is what's about. And now that I've said that I realized though, that was the best question you could ask me. Okay. So we clambered out. Yeah. We got a new dream. Now, I guess there's been many dreams since then. What what was the first dream? The very first dream. Mm -hmm. um, I, again, to put it in its most simple form is um, when I do my public speaking workshop, I always start off with, uh, hello, everyone. Let me start off by telling you who I am. My name is Michael Dieterich. I'm 52 years old. I'm originally from California, and I am an international speaker, a corporate trainer. And then I say, I'm going to stop there. I said, I've told you a lie, and who can tell me what the lie was? And people go, oh, you're not 52, or you're not from California, you know? <laughs> and I go, no, the lie is, I, what did I start off with? I said, let me tell you who I am. And I said, I haven't told you who I am. I gave you my CV. I told you the information you can find on my Tinder profile. None of that told you who I am. If I'm going to tell you who I am, I can give it to you in three answers. I'm a performer. I'm a clown. And I'm a teacher. And I don't mean teacher as a profession necessarily, but someone like you who loves to share their knowledge with other people. So I don't necessarily mean a job because a job is how you make money. It's not necessarily who you are. So that's the first lie. I'm a performer, I'm a clown, and I am a teacher. So if you say what's the first dream is, there is a picture of me and my older sister. I'm in my underwear and a little blue turtleneck shirt, and I am dancing with my sister, and I'm standing on the TV, and I'm just 
going for it like I'm on this stage. And every time I look at that picture, it reminds me I wanted to like share either knowledge or emotion or clowning or performance on stage. So the first dream was I want to be on stage and I want to entertain. I want to be an entertainer. So that's the first dream. Uh, and the funny thing is everything I do, whether it be singing in a musical, performing uh, in an improv show or hosting an event or teaching imp improv workshops. I call it entertainment. What I do because you know, people laugh. There's like some stand-up involved. So the first dream is still the, the, the basis dream of all of them, because even giving improv workshops, even hosting an event, even helping to moderate a brainstorm session for a company, all of those things I'm performing and I'm entertaining. So that first dream is still there, even if singing isn't one of the possibilities in there. I'm still following that dream for sure. I'm going to add something, Michael. Okay. Uh, okay. So in talking about the secrets of success, and the 11 steps of success, what I've found in successful people is tenacity, the work ethic. They keep going and keep going. And I want to share an example about you, if I may. Uh, sure. Okay. So I went to Dubai and you were late arriving in oh. Dubai. <laughs> So um, I was told, hey, Michael Diedrich should be here. I don't think he's going to be here. So me being me, I was like, oh, why is that? Oh, he, he has appendicitis. And I, oh, okay, all is forgiven. No problem then. So he has appendicitis. He's in hospital right now. Uh, he should come to the QE2 to be the compare for you and at the trade, World Trade Center, we'll have to find someone else to introduce you on stage. Okay, that's no problem at all. The night before the QE2, you arrived. And I, did, I didn't know you very well at this stage. So I'd spoken at this, this KPI thing where you had a change in judgments, let me say. Yeah. And then the next day, so we'd gone to bed, gone. Next day, we were on the QE2. You introduced me on stage, and you were magical, as I said earlier, magical. You introduced a few other people on stage, and your energy was phenomenal. And I just thought, what a lovely guy. What a great guy. But there's something going on that I didn't know, and that's the bit I want to share. Because... The show ended and had the round of applause, standing ovations, all those things would come off stage. And then you're at the back on the floor, doubled over in pain with tears in your eyes. <laughs> and I said, Michael, what's the matter? He said, it's okay. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I said, I can't leave you. And of course, you were in pain from the appendix operation and you shouldn't have been there. And I remember I sat down on the floor with you, talked with you, and we hugged and I said, we have to pace this, you know, but 
you're a magical man. I mean, you flew from the Netherlands to be in Dubai because the show must go on. If I'm to use a I theatrical to be there, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember being in the hospital and I'm talking to the doctor and the doctor just, I was like, so when can I go? Because when you're better, we have to see. Yeah, but I'm supposed to fly. You can't fly today. Can I fly tomorrow? Well, I mean, we'll have to see, but I wouldn't recommend it. You wouldn't recommend it, but can't I? And then my, at that point, my husband as well, like, are you crazy? And I was like, yeah. And I remember as well, you know, my, he, my, my ex-husband, he is like the finance guy and, um, we hadn't taken like cancellation insurance on the flight or anything. And I'm going, it would be a shame to do it. He goes, your health's more important. He go, I said, but the doctor didn't say I can't fly. He said, I wouldn't recommend it. He said, I'll oh, give me some medication and I have to take it easy. So literally, I mean, I do remember showing up and uh, meeting everyone. We were in some sort of like uh, uh, art gallery slash restaurant. Was, I mean, I still see pictures. Everyone was at the table. Um, and then I was like trying to take it uh, slow. But at that point, it was like, okay, now it's my job. Jeff, if I couldn't have done it, I would have said, Dave or Ernesto or whatever, someone else has to do this. I can't do it. But at that moment, I knew I could do it. But it literally, I remember being on stage smiling. And it's like, as long as no one knows, because it's not about me. But if I am going to double over in pain, then I will say to someone, do it. And I remember doing it. And when it was over and it's like, okay, cut, and the cameras are off, I was like, there's also, I think some of the adrenaline was carrying me through that, you know, the endorphins and stuff. But when that was over, I was like, do we need to do anything else? No, we're getting ready to go. And I just like, there was no off stage there as well. I remember. So I couldn't like go backstage. And that's why I tried to like hide up at the top of the theater, laying down underneath the seats. But then it's like, everyone was going out. And I do remember that. And yeah, the show must go on at that point. If I couldn't have done it, I wouldn't, but I could, and I'm going to give, everything i can at that moment if 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 giving everything i can meant that i was gonna die i wouldn't have done it you know but i knew at this moment people are counting on me there were people that i'd met the year before who were like oh wait you're not gonna do my intro yeah i am gonna do your oh thank you people wanted me to do their intros i was like great some people wanted oh well they great i don't care i got no ego but i it's like i need i'm here i did everything i could to be here and i did it it's so funny because you started telling me it's like i want to share something i was like oh i wonder what it is and then you started saying that it's like what was it and then you mentioned that and i was like oh my god i completely had forgotten about that because it's funny that that made of course it made an impact but for me it was just like it's just a fact. So it's funny you bring that up. And now then you say that, that I go, yeah, tenacity, that is so important that, yeah, the show must goes on. I think that's part of the, definitely the show business, business work ethic, you know, uh, yeah, the show must go on. And it definitely went on. And I don't think most people knew there was, I think people went, Oh yeah, he flew out here. Oh, it must not have been that bad. Or, Oh, I guess he's feeling, Oh, he's feeling fine. You know? And then afterwards, yeah, you, you just like, just before you pricked right through me, like, no, Michael, you're not fine. You know, Michael, you're throwing this, I can't sing anymore thing away. You get right to the heart of it, Jeff. And that's exactly it. I was not fine, but it was more like, if I just lie here and relax, the pain's going to subside and I'll be able to, 
you know, move on and I'll get rest tonight. I think, you know, people went out for drinks that night and I just didn't go out for drinks. I remember that trip as well, not being as fun as other ones, just because it was like, I have to do the things I have to do. And I can't necessarily do the, oh, we're going to, you know, go boating today. And it's like, that's maybe not the best idea for me. Oh, that's lovely that you remember that, Jeff. Well, the reason, the reason, the very reason I raise it, Michael, is because you said, who am I? And you didn't include that quality. So I want to make sure that quality is reinforced in you. You have, you are a person of amazing work ethic. I use the metaphor of the show must go on because of your theatrical background. Yeah. And I know lots of actors. I know many speakers. They might say that, but no one goes to the degree that you did on that day. And yeah. that's part of who you are. You are an amazing person. And I, for one, I'm, it was an amazing show. And I just want to say thank you, Michael, because I didn't know. I didn't yeah. know. But, and that, but that's, yeah, so I, I love that you said that. But for me, it's like it's a personality trait because I know lots of performers that are great performers that have terrible work, work, work ethic. Yeah. So for me, it's like it's, it's more of like an adjective to me than like who I am. But if you were to say like what are ways that you describe yourself, yeah, I would definitely say I'm a go-getter. I'm a tenacious person. Um, um, people say, are you a quitter? No, but if if like I realize like this isn't going to work, I'm also not going to waste my time. Keep doing it like, you know, the insanity definition, doing something over and over and expecting a different outcome. I ain't going to do it. I'm going to find a new path as well. But that's tenacity as well. Don't give up. Yeah. Give better thought to what you're doing. Give yourself a different chance. So I, I don't think I've seen that as like a noun of I'm a performer but it's nice to hear you say it that I go, yeah, it's definitely who I am. And I think it's the reason, like I said to you, I don't have, you know, people are amazed. They go, what's your website? And I go, I don't have a website. They go, you need to get a friggin' website. All of my, all of my work, even, you know, I work as a justice of the peace as well. I marry people. I write their speeches and I make like comical, emotional moments. Every single wedding I've done, Six months to a year later, someone who was at that wedding says, my sister's getting married uh, and I want you to do it. Then I do that wedding. And then six months later, oh, I was at the wedding of that guy's sister. And would you marry us? Now, of course, I think being successful, I could be more successful if I got my name out there more. And that's why I'm going, it's time not to just rest on my laurels and rely on <coughs> people calling me for work. I need to get my name out there more. And that's part of that being tenacious. Now that my divorce uh, is finalized and I realize life has gotten expensive after the pandemic and I wasn't getting as much work. It's like, how do I remain successful? How do I keep my lifestyle? I, I need to work smarter, not harder. Okay. Let's take that then. And so, because lots of people say I need to work smart, smarter, not harder. Yeah. But then they, they, they don't say how. So yeah. now we're going to move into the how. So you are a genius at improv. Thank you. And improvisation. So here's the interesting stuff now. What is improvisation? 
to me, it sounds like a contradiction in terms because how can it be something you can learn to do if it's improv, yeah. right? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like contradictory. So how can we learn? You can teach us some stuff now, hopefully, yeah. and give us some tips to get started. But what, first of all, set it up for us, please. So what is improvisation? Why should we care? Yeah. And how will it help us to be more successful in our business and in our lives? Great. So what, why, how? Uh, the what is, if we think about improvisation, just the simple definition of the world, you know, improvisation is kind of like winging it, making up as you go. When suddenly you're somewhere and someone says, oh, you were uh, you were in Dubai, Jeff, last year. Um, how was it? And you go, oh, well, I didn't prepare a presentation on Dubai, but you'll just go, oh, Dubai was lovely. There's lots of places to eat. People talk about, like, the culture. But, yeah, people were very, very open and friendly. We were welcome. And you just improvise that off your head. You didn't prepare it. So people improvise all the time. Um, I always remind people as well, the worst example of improvisation is uh, is lying. Like when you get confronted, like the wife goes, oh, you were supposed to be, you know, at the hotel and you weren't there. Where were you? Oh, you know, me and the guys, we did, we decided to go out for drinks. That's improvisation as well. You know, you're making it up. That's but, an interesting, yeah. very interesting parallel. So, but, but that's, there's so many ways to think of improvisation yeah. as well. So people have a misconception, you know, when they say, oh, he's the KPI guy, they don't go, well, wait a minute. No, you talk about KPIs, but then people go, well, a key performance indicator. I know what that is, or maybe I don't. But when it comes to improvisation, people go, well, wait a minute. So, oh, you make stuff up or, oh, you wing it or you lie. Well, well in a way, acting is is lying. I'm playing a different you know, person as well. Um, so when it comes to improvisation, I like to think of it as the entertainment form of improvisation. You have television shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway, which are famous in uh, England, in America, in Australia. They're still going strong. In local theaters all around the world, you'll see things like the improv Olympics or comedy sports. And these are all forms of improvisation where almost always a group, mostly two or more, you know, two to six or 10, whatever, people have come together and asking the audience for suggestions of what's a place where people might meet or, um, you know, uh, what's uh, what's your favorite color or yeah, even give me a number between one and 10, whatever it is. Any word that ends in L-Y, you know, there's so many different suggestions. What's a gift you'd never give someone for a birthday? And we take that suggestion and working together as a team, we create brand new comedy scenes. So improvisation, uh, when people think of it, they'll think of like whose line is it anyway. And there's often like mini games, like little forms, like, oh, this time they're going to turn it into a song. Or this time one of you is reading your responses from a classic book. There's all there's thousands of different games. But it's this art of making things up. And I think it's interesting that you said, well, how can you learn that? Um, I think you can learn anything. It doesn't mean you're going to be good at it, though. So, like, for example, singing is one of those things. You can take voice, voice lessons and, like, learn to sing. Will it mean you're going to become a recording artist? No. Is there a chance that you're tone deaf and you're never going to become a professional singer? Yeah. But there are 
qualities to it that you go, yeah, I can learn these things. So when I was working for Boom Chicago in the past, we would every night in front of a live audience uh, and, you know, people are drinking. It's like a bar setting as well. Uh, Cause we always say, you know, the more you drink, the funnier we seem was our, our motto. And uh, people get excited because when, you know, they say, Oh, vampire. And then you do a funny scene about a vampire. They feel involved in what's going on. It's one of the reasons why oftentimes that like, you'll someone will go, Oh, we did this great improv scene. Watch the video. And you go, well, it's funny, but it doesn't feel the same because if I'd been there at that moment and I'd heard that person say it, it's different. So if you don't understand what improvisation is, I say, you know, look up whose line is it anyway, or go to one of your local shows and watch it. So that's the, 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 what is uh, improv. Um, then your next question had to do with um, uh, why should we care? Yeah. Yeah. So when we were working as Boom Chicago, we were also going, okay, we've got a, a theater now. Uh, we can do shows uh, seven nights a week because we have like a rotating cast of actors. But it's like, oh, we wanted a tour as well. So we hired more actors. We had like two musical directors. So Sometimes some people would be doing an event for a company in the south of Holland while the others were in the theater working. And you're constantly trying to expand, like, how do you become more successful? And one of the ways was, what's the value of improvisation to other people? And one of the observations was we were doing events at companies, and we were at Heineken, and they invited us to watch a brainstorming session with their company and um, to, to, to see how improvisation might be able to help us. And my big observation was the way that, and even to this day, it's still the same because we're talking 25 years ago is when this happened. The way that people work together in a group in business is almost 180 degrees diametrically opposed to how we as improvisers work together on stage. So imagine you work for a company and you're having a brainstorming session and you're with these group of people and you know them. And I'll just give an example of brainstorming. Let's say you have like a company logo and it's black and your CEO says, we want to put some color in there. So we're going to change our logo. What color should it be? And then someone says, well, red, well, at that moment, these 30 people in this room, the only positive reaction are the other people who thought red because they're like, oh, I was thinking that too. Not because it's the right idea, but just because I was thinking that too. And more often than not, the other two responses are, no, red's a bad idea because, or, well, I was thinking green or blue or pink, and that's better than red because. So almost no one in the room is concentrating on what's on the table, which is red. Why might red be the good idea? Now, as improvisers, we get on stage every night, sometimes with people we don't know. Someone throws something at us, like red, and then we have to quickly and efficiently work together to succeed. And our succeed is, can we turn this into something funny? And when we do that, we get applause. So we went, well, why don't companies do that? Why don't they take what's thrown out there efficiently and quickly find the solution and then move on? Because that's not how businesses work. So the concept became, well, what if we taught 
businesses the art of improvisation and taught them new ways of thinking and helped them uh, open their mind. And instead of going, well, why red sucks? Because how can I help you? Um, you know, you know, I can talk about improv for hours, but one of the funny things is when someone's performing a scene in improv, I'm usually standing to the side and there's two questions you can always ask yourself. And that is what's missing and how can I help? So I'm watching this scene and they're talking about whatever this red tent, you know, and it's a circus. And it's like, oh, God, it's such a great circus. And it's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I came to see the elephants. It's like, that's my dream to see an elephant. So I'm off the side thinking either it's funny that no elephant shows up or it's funny that an elephant shows up. So what's missing is the elephant. How can I help? I'm going to grab my partner. I'm going to jump on their back and here comes the elephant, you know. I'm going to give them what they want, you know? So that's how I can help. Instead of going, oh, elephants are stupid. No, I'm not, you know, we're always so concerned in business about what's our idea and our ego and like, oh, I wanted to say that, you know? Or someone will say red and so no, no, not red, green. No, not green, blue. It's like, are we going to argue about which color we're talking about first? Why don't we talk about the first idea on the table? Yeah. And I say to people like, what's red mean to you? Oh, it's, it's passionate. It's hot. Um, it's fiery, it's bright. And I go, are these words the words that say something about your company? And you go, no, we're, we're laid back and we're, we're cool and we're fluid. Great. So where do we look next? Not orange, not yellow. Let's look in the cool colors. Let's go blue. So by talking about the first idea on the table positively, even when it turns out it didn't work out, it steers us towards the right answer. But businesses, we just go, no, red, stupid. Oh, red, it's like the red light district. Oh, it's the color of blood. Are you a vampire? And then the boss says, great. Well, red, stupid. What's the next idea? And then there's this silence because no one wants to get eviscerated next. They're now afraid to pitch their idea because everyone's just going to piss all over their idea. And that's not how we work in improv. Um, I spend my first half hour of my workshop working to the secret of improv. And it's a secret that we hear in business like every five years. I've noticed that business is like, oh, this year it's the cloud and next year it's transparency, right? Uh, so every year these ideas come up. But one of the ideas that keeps returning is yes and. And yes and is the number one rule of improvisation. So that's a freebie for everyone uh, right there. Yes and is the secret. If you watch whose line is it anyway, you may not hear the word yes and but it's implied in everything. Someone says, oh, I'm so sorry about your grandma. She was so young. Yeah, you know, as a circus performer, 30 is, a, you know, very young age to die as a juggler. What did I do? I agreed that my grandma died at a young age and I added something, you know, she was a juggler. And then my partner goes, yeah, maybe it was not a good idea to go for the world record of seven chainsaws. So now we're discovering more and more information and it's getting silly. And if we hear the audience laughing. We go, oh, we're now we're fishing in the right pond. We're looking for another great secret of improv is what's the shiny object? We do this scene and suddenly, oh, it's about the chainsaws. Apparently, the audience says, you said this earlier to me today, it's not necessarily our perception, but other people's. And people go, well, they're laughing about the seven chainsaws. Well, we're going to continue down that path, even though that might not have been my original idea. I have to let go of my own idea. So there's so many 
tenets and rules to improvisation that if you apply them to team building, internal communication, public speaking, all of these things make you a better colleague. They make you a better performer. And when I mean performer, more like keep performance indicators, things like that. And they make you a better colleague. People will now come to you and, hey, hey, can I ask you about something? Because they know they're going to get feedback and know, oh, that won't work. That's what we hear so many times. Oh, that won't work. Oh, we tried that two years ago. It didn't work. Well, that was like pandemic time. Maybe things have changed. Let's talk about why it might work now. But people don't talk about that. No, it won't work because... So why is it important? That's why it's important because the skill of improvisation, you know, Dave uh, Crane, who we also both worked with, we both have uh, something that irritates us is we don't like the term soft skills because it makes it sound unimportant. And if you go, well, improvisation, yeah, people go, oh, well, that's a soft skill. If you ask me, if you want to be successful in the business world, improvisation is super important because what happens when like something goes wrong at a presentation? I go, if you can improvise, you don't need that deck of slides. You should still be able to do it. And by learning improvisation, it'll make you better. When someone asks you a question, that's also when people do presentations, there's that great moment. They did a great presentation. They may not be the best speaker. They had everything prepared and they go, Oh, thank you very much. And then they shrink and they go, any questions? Because it's the one thing they can't prepare for. And then the audience feels pressure because they like, oh, what am I going to ask? And then you get asked the question. You go, okay, how do I answer that? And as an improviser, I don't stress about it. And many people do. And if you've learned these skills about saying yes and to yourself as well, how you handle an audience, also humor. When you learn to improvise, you like develop your sense of humor, and everyone knows humor is a great way to get your audience on board. It's like a built-in uh, jolt of adrenaline enthusiasm in one. When your audience laughs, you're like, okay, I got him. Now I can draw you in. So why is it important? That's why. It will make you more successful. I guarantee it. Absolutely. Some wonderful explanations there. I want to put some some further ones on there and yeah. br bring in some points that you raised earlier. Yeah. So you said, when I go on stage, I'm Michael, but Michael plus. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's delve into that one. Because yeah. I, I have a dear friend, yeah. Steve Louie, who is also in Dubai. And I was speaking at a conference and I'm sitting with Steve at a table before it was my turn to speak. I was the keynote speaker at this conference and for the grave shot, the graveyard shift, which is the session after lunch where everybody wants to fall asleep. So who do we bring on? Oh, yeah, let's let's call Jeff. So everybody being called back into the meeting room and I'm sitting at a table with a bottle of water with my buddy Steve. And we we're just talking. We we're just we we're just good buddies. So then uh, Robert Snook, the uh, MC, comes on, gives this wonderful introduction, and I'm still talking with Steve. And he said, hey, you're on stage now. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll wait for him to finish, then I'll stand up and go. And he's getting nervous. <laughs> So I'm I'm saying, right, okay, we I think I'm ready now. Yeah, yeah. So then he welcomes me to the stage. So I stand up, 
walk onto the stage and I have no idea what I'm going to say, Michael. That's the first thing I will say. I know the subject, but I don't know what I'm going to say. So there's a PowerPoint there just to help the audience stay on track with what I'm going to talk about. That That's it. So if you're going to do a business presentation, run a meeting, if you're all rehearsed and you rehearse a speech verbatim by rote, you're probably going to get into trouble, aren't you? You probably are, because what happens? First of all, yes, I also do Jeff Plus, because speaking and training, you're not the same person. And there's this joke between Steve, Louis, myself, because I come off stage and he looks at me and he said, who the hell was that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's not my buddy, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. different hat. And then we do training and we're speaking beforehand. He introduces me on and I do training. We come out for the break and he goes, who the hell was that? And I said, you different people. Yep. But you know what's interesting? People say to me with conferences and training, do you not get bored doing the same thing over and over? And here's my answer. I've never, ever given the same speech twice. And I've never run the same training course twice. It might have the same title. But the point I want to draw out is when you were talking about your comedy sketches and then you talk about, oh, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have tried the the world record with chainsaws. And and then I noticed the audience laughing. Oh, we'll tap into that. So as a business person, when you're hosting a meeting – or you're doing a presentation, you should be aware of the same things because it's not about you. It's about the people with whom you are communicating. So it's looking for those skills too and then having the ability to improvise so your message fits with them. Have I got that about right? Yeah, and it's funny because we're talking, I'm, I, when my clients hire me, I often say, Hey, if you're having like a full day, um, my big suggestion is put me first because I will pump them up in the morning. I will give them information that will make them better listeners through your whole conference, because that's part of, uh, uh, what I, I teach. And, uh, a lot of my communication tips and tricks that I'll be giving will help them later to network and to talk about these things. I said, if you put me at the end of the day, then you will waste that information. They won't get to use it. I said, if you can't put me at the end, at the beginning, put me in the worst shift that there is. And they're like, well, what's the worst shift? It's after lunch. Yeah, the graveyard go, shift. What? Yeah, it's, I've never heard it called graveyard. I just call it the after lunch because people have already gone through the morning and now they've just had this meal and suddenly like the carbohydrates and the tannins are hitting them and it's like now they're tired for the first time. And so I come back, and the first thing is, um, yeah, you know, my my energy can be infectious, and sometimes then I'm Michael plus plus because it's like, <laughs> okay, I gotta gotta give you a little bit more. But part of my improvisation often has to do with the fact is I will observe people during lunch, and suddenly you go like, no one's eating those tuna fish sandwiches, you know, and it's like that might be worthy to say something, or it's like. 
everyone is drinking this Spanish orange juice and they're talking about how great it is or whatever. I'm watching like, what's my in to bring people back from lunch? You know, oh my God, wasn't that great? That Carpaccio, it's like, oh, I just want to take a nap. And I'll make a joke. It's like, well, you guys have to listen, but 15 minutes, I'm going to go take a nap. I'll make a joke about it, whatever it is. Um, but it's, that's part of improvisation as well. It's like, it didn't just come off the top of my head, but I was observing what was happening around me and making a joke about that. Or, you know, I think I had made a joke as well once with you. Oh, I did that online is sometimes if someone's speaking about something and then later I'm reintroducing, it's like, Oh, I'm going to do a, uh, um, uh, uh, a speech as well, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Jeff Smith was uh, before the uh, lunch, and he's the KPI guy. But I'm also the KPI guy. But mine is to keep people interested. Is then I'll take KPI and come up with like a new anagram, and it's like then people make an association of, oh yeah, we saw Jeff, we saw KPI, and that's just like off the top of my head right now. Uh, so it's like, can I use what's happened before and turn that into something funny without, you know, making fun of uh, anyone? So that. After after uh, lunch, that is an interesting thing. Then when it comes to what you were talking about, you know, I also give a little presentation at companies called PowerPointless, which is uh, how people use PowerPoint so poorly. Uh, too much information on the slides, they can't read them, too many graphs that you can't understand. Um, I feel like people go, oh, we only need to use 10 slides. No, use 30 slides and put one sentence per slide. Don't. So here's all seven yeah, ideas. I'm not listening to you. I'm reading. And when I yeah. get to seven, you're on two. I haven't been listening to you. PowerPoint should be a tool. It's not the presentation. And I see so many people that I go, you know what? Just don't talk and send me the PowerPoint because I'll get through this way faster than you will. And mm -hmm. I'll get all the information. What's your added value? Otherwise, you shouldn't be there. And like I said, humor is a big one, but not everyone has that. So when people ask me what's the plus of Michael Plus, it's enthusiasm. And one of my big secrets about enthusiasm is some people go, well, I'm just not that kind of guy. And I go, well, are you ever enthusiastic? Well, yeah. And I go, well, enthusiasm, strangely enough, people don't realize it's a choice. You choose to be enthusiastic. Yeah. You might be going on vacation and you go, oh, I got a lot to do. Well, you're choosing to focus on that, but I bet you get on vacation, you go, oh, this is great. Why aren't you focusing on that part of it? So I tell people, especially if you use like PowerPoint, you know, you can often put things on your own monitor in the background. I go, what are you enthusiastic about? Sailing? Put pictures of your sailboat as your screensaver in the background. Your dog? Your dog. And every time you click and you see that, there's your dog. And you go, oh, look, there's my dog. It's a simple little trick. You go, People don't go, well, he's talking about KPIs, but what's he enthusiastic about? They're not asking that. They just see someone enthusiastic. You don't, so many people are afraid of public speaking. So don't try and fool me by acting like you like it. Be enthusiastic. It doesn't matter what you're enthusiastic about. You know, I, I have a friend, uh, well, now he's a friend. He was, um, CFO of uh, Tommy Hilfiger for years, a German guy with the downturned mouth. His name was Christoph. He's, today I'm very excited to introduce my passion of shoes. And I go, you don't seem excited or passion. 
And I did this trick with him. I talked to his wife because the first time I went to his office, he had hundreds of pictures of his family. And I go, what's this? Oh, this is my family. And like, he came to life. And I was like, yeah. I didn't even know. I didn't know he had teeth at that point, you know? <laughs> and he's telling me about all his kids and stuff like that. So I managed to get his wife's number. And I said, hey, would you send me like 30 pictures of your family, please? I want to help your husband. Don't tell him. I said this, and I plugged those into his PowerPoint presentation. Now, with him, it didn't work out quite as planned because he let it affect him in the wrong way. He was like, we're going to talk about the modern. It's the first shoe. This is why it's a popular. And he looked and he clicked and he went. And then he had like this dumb look on his face, enthusiastic. And he started talking, and within two sentences, he was back there again. He goes, now let's talk about the flooring. And click. And every picture like hit him in the heart, but everyone was watching him and like, he, he keeps having like these attacks of endorphins where he smiles and then he turns back into the old Kristoff. And people asked like, how'd you like it? And he was like, yeah, it was interesting because sometimes it was like, you were super excited, enthusiastic, and sometimes it was just like the old Kristoff. And it was because he did let it affect him, but he forgot. And now he does it himself. He He adds his own pictures and now he knows I can just carry that with me. But it's one of those big secrets to me is to be a good presenter or host, or even if you're talking to your team, you know, to be enthusiastic. Oh, we're going to talk about the new bathroom policy. You don't have to be like, oh, my God, let's talk about our rules for being. That's acting enthusiastic. But if you even say, hey, guys, I just brought you together. We're going to have some coffee. I brought some danishes. Uh, let's just have those real quick. And um, we're going to get through this real quick. Knock it out of the park. I know everyone's got things to do. But let's just get through this. It'll be easy. And I go, oh, you're you're not going, oh, then we have to do this. No, you're being enthusiastic. You've brought danishes. And you're making this a positive experience. And so many people make their presentations a negative experience. I'm nervous. Uh, people know more than me. My boss is in the audience. And that's a big, my big secret is be enthusiastic, not necessarily about public speaking, but be enthusiastic. Yeah. There's no such thing as a boring subject. O no. Only a boring speaker. Correct. That can kill it dead. Because uh, I've seen like, uh, I've seen people have like brilliant presentations, but like they're a bad speaker. And it's like, I wish I had your deck because I would go up there right now and I would improv the shit out of this mm -hmm. and people would believe me because your information and your deck is so good, but you're a horrible speaker. And I've seen people like, oh my God, poor guy, you got to talk about this for a half an hour, but they're a brilliant speaker and then it doesn't matter anymore. So people are often more concerned about the subject matter. And you said something interesting as well. There are people who can memorize things route and then bring them over and it feels spontaneous, but most of the time they don't. Uh, and my suggestion is always, you know, find a way that works for you, but let's say, let's say I'm in Amsterdam right now and I need to go to Paris. I wouldn't just get in the car and go, okay, well, let's go to Paris. That's like completely unprepared. But I'm also not going to do a meter by meter, go one meter forward, one meter forward, one meter forward, one meter forward, turn right. One. No, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my GPS and I'm just going to get those moments where things change. You know, bullet points. I hate when like someone loses their point in a presentation and they've got like 18 sheets of paper and are like, where am I? You need one piece of paper maximum, 
Yeah. Or business cards and just once you've covered something, flip, it's gone. Yeah. You will never lose your place again. Uh, so a good presenter will save that for sure. Uh, and people think, oh, it's all about the topic. But it's like you said, I I give trainings all the times, and I find myself like repeating the same ideas. But I I haven't I never say the same thing like exactly the same twice. And like yesterday, I said something. I was like, oh, I've never said that before. And I was like, I want to remember that as well because I'll use it for a while until it you know fades out or I find something different. Yeah, you, when people ask you, like, tell me about yourself in 30 seconds, you don't go, okay, hold on. My name is Michael. No, you just talk about it. And people lose that spontaneity. My name is Michael, and I am 52. And you just go, oh, you're memorized this. Mm -hmm. Now, some people can do it. Uh, so when I work with training people, then I, if I go, if you're that person, great. If that gives you confidence, but the most part, You'll trip over one word, and then everything will go wrong because mm -hmm. once you've lost one word, you've lost it all. Yeah. But if you know what I'm talking about next, great, you can pick it up again. Yeah, sure. So what you said about enthusiasm about a subject and genuine enthusiasm, yeah. um, I want to put this into a business context because there's in in um, I've seen lots of managers, Michael, lots of very good managers. And I watched them fail because their presentation skills are not fit for purpose. And you've heard the saying, right? It has to be seen to be believed. Yeah. I reverse that. You have to believe, you have to, people have to believe before you're seen. That's, yeah. that's what happens as a speaker. And when I say speaker, I don't mean motivational speaker on stage. I mean the person heading a meeting. If people are going to go with you on your journey, they have to believe in you. Right. Before you are seen. Correct. And it's so important that you get the level of, don't misunderstand enthusiasm. It's enough, not the acting, as you quite rightly say, be true unto yourself, but believing what you're doing and that belief comes across. And that, that's the depth of the knowledge in, in the subject. So you know, I find that the Dutch can be under-enthusiastic people and Americans can be over-enthusiastic. And then you get like, oh, hi, everyone. I'm so great to be here. It's fantastic. And I go, I don't believe you. Yeah. And Dutch people are like, hi, everyone. It's fantastic to be here. And I go, oh. I don't believe you either. Yeah, and yeah. It's like there's a middle ground between there. And that's part of my, you know, in the training as well. And you go, what's going to get my audience on board? There's different ways of doing that. There's, you know, excitement. Uh, there's passion. There's humor. But I find the easiest is enthusiasm. And when you talk about presenting your rights, you know, a lot of these companies have this like Monday morning powwow where they get together and like everyone in the department has to do it, you know. So like next week, oh, it's Sharon's going to do it. And it's like, well, Sharon's terrified. And it's like, how are you going to make me enthusiastic to lead this powwow this week? Or do you, are you humoristic? Are you energetic? Are you passionate? And if you're not, enthusiasm is the easy one because everyone can choose to be enthusiastic. Just don't act enthusiastic. Yeah, for sure. Nothing is so infectious as enthusiasm. Michael, right. I've got a personal question for you. Great. You need to write a book. I agree. Okay. I didn't. Ag I didn't agree with you two hours ago. Uh, 
I am hard working and I was just like, oh, that's just one more thing to do. But boy, you changed my mind within like a minute. So yeah, I totally agree with you. Okay. As additional motivation and help for our listeners, when your book is done, I'd like you to come back on the show so you can tell us more about how to learn improv in a business context so we can achieve higher levels of success. Is that okay with you? Of course. Now, if you're impatient and you're like, oh my God, I'm so excited about this right now, find me on LinkedIn. I will travel anywhere in the world because I'm better. I mean, I will write a book because not everyone can do that. Uh, but I don't know if Jeff, maybe you'll attest to this as well. Um, the One of the other reasons why I haven't written a book is, and this is going to be maybe the first time that I say something today that might come across as um, maybe egotistical, but I find that I, we were talking about, you know, bad presenters uh, not being able to save good material. Um, I find that I'm a great presenter that does great material and I add value to what I give. So people always go, Oh, we had an improv training before, but what you did and your energy was infectious. So that's why I always go like, yeah, I don't want to write just a book because I want, I want to connect with people. I want to, I want to be there and do the exercises. But at the same time, the excitement of sharing my knowledge, because as I said in the beginning, I'm also a teacher is what convinced me when you told me you have to write a book. It's like, and even then someone might read the book and go, wow, this is great. I need to, I need to bring him in. So that might work as well, but yeah, it is a way of reaching more people. So I'm definitely going to, Jeff, you heard it from me. I am going to write your book. I'm I'm not going to write, sorry. I am going to write a book. And just to tell you, I had a great time. I will be on your program anytime you want me. So <laughs> You're a darling. Thank you. All that stuff that you were fearful that might not go into a book, I'm going to teach you how to do it. Yeah. That's the deal. Okay. So now a really important question that goes really, really deep. Here we go. Or it might not. It's a question that I ask everyone. Are you ready? Yes. Michael. What is the most important thing you've ever learned in your life? Wow. What a great question. You know, I'm thinking about it and I'm I'm trying to like search all the answers in my mind, but almost immediately a voice is, is coming into my head and I'm, I'm, I'm actually not being a good improviser and I'm not being a good business person. Cause I was like, no, 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 I don't no, no, I'll look for something else. And it's there. And I think it kind of goes hand in hand with what we said today as well. When you reminded me about tenacity is there are people out there who are going to tell you constantly why you can't do something, why you shouldn't do something. And, uh, there's going to be more people will be blocks and enemies than allies. Uh, and it's like finding those allies that are important, but the most important ally is yourself. And I think that people don't trust and believe in themselves enough. And as cliche as it may sound, I grew up as a fat little 
blooming homosexual where everyone knew I was gay before I did. And I didn't understand why people were constantly calling me, you know, fag and fairy growing up. I was, I didn't know, I didn't understand. And then later I was like, Oh, well, in a way they were right, but it was such a terrible uh, time. And it really pushed me down until like I got in high school and still I was tormented in high school, but the theater department embraced me because I always believed I had talent. I always believed I could perform. I always believed I could do this. And when I got on stage and I do those things, then even bullies would be like, wow, that was really good. They might not tell me, but I was like, I'm looking out in the audience. And it's like, well, you're not shouting at me now. And that was the function of believing in myself. And like I said, it might sound cliche, but what's the most important thing I've ever learned Really, I think it's believe in yourself, trust yourself, listen to yourself, stop doubting yourself. I mean, those are all functions of the same thing. It's like, oh, you know what I want to do? I'm going to teach it. Oh, no, but, you know, my family. And then suddenly your dream has died. Talk about to yourself about why something might be a good idea and not why it's impossible. So many dreams die before people even consider how they might pursue them. It's like, oh, I've always wanted to go to, oh, but my family, oh, I can't afford it. Wait a minute. Money is going to be what's stopping you from your dream? Wait, your dream's already dead because you don't believe that you can raise this money. You don't believe you can learn this talent. You don't believe you can influence these people, you know, I, again, and it's, it's a lesson that you'll keep learning. Like I said, Dubai, that was it. Here's all these worlds. Like, Oh my God, what are people going to, what are people going to, I'm the youngest person here. What are people going to listen from, from me? And then afterwards I was like, Dietrich, why'd you doubt yourself? You're good at what you did. These people loved it. They all came to me afterwards. Like, wow, that's, I mean, I've been doing this for years, but I never knew this or, oh, what an impact or why haven't I heard of you? And it was great. And it's not just like an ego question, but at that moment I was like, why did I doubt myself? Uh, because if I doubted myself, I would go, oh, you know what? Yeah, Dave, why don't you do this? Or Ernesto, you know what? I'm just going to go home. Why, you know, these people know what they're talking about. And then my dream would have died. And then I would have never met you and I wouldn't be here. It's a function of believing and going forward and that doesn't mean ignore other people either but it's not about their opinions it's about finding their allies so i believe in myself and that's why i'm so glad we reconnected because you're like i want to help you do this i want to mentor you in this and i go like oh i'm an open book that's seize the opportunities I think that's in there as well. I seized the opportunity to go to Europe. I seized the opportunity when this casting director said audition for a musical. I seized the opportunity when my comedy group said, you can't sing anymore. Do you want to go full time? I seized the opportunity when my ex-husband said, why are you working for this company? We can make it so that you can become a freelancer. And so I listened to him. So it's not about ignoring other people, about finding your allies finding your mentors, finding the people can, and listen to yourself and don't tell yourself what's impossible. Tell yourself, oh, this is what I want. How do I get it? Wonderful. Now, if people want to know more about improv and how they can improve their lives, how do they contact you? How can we reach out to you? Uh, my best way is, I mean, I'm on all social medias as M Dieterich, uh, 
uh, NL, NL standing for Netherlands. Uh, the best way to reach me in a capacity that I will answer the fastest is LinkedIn because that for me is like the business social media. If you want to see pictures of me being silly with my family, go to Facebook. If you want to see me being pretentious, look for me on Instagram. If you want to see me saying snarky about modern politics, find me on Twitter. But if you want to learn more about improvisation, you're looking for a host, you're looking for a coach, you're looking for a perfect training, M. Dieterich NL, and you will find me on LinkedIn. Michael, I think you are wonderful. Thank you I for your... I feel the same about you. Thank you so much. You have been amazing. Michael Dietrich, I've really enjoyed having you on the show today. You are an amazing person. Thank you so much. Thank you. Wow, what an interesting interview we have today. And thank you for listening to The Secrets of Success. I hope the show has helped to ignite your passion, to be a catalyst for action, and given you the fuel you need to realize your dreams. If you've enjoyed the show, please hit the like button, leave a review and share it. You know, helping someone to improvise is as easy as sharing the show with just one person. It could make a real big difference to that to that person. Even understanding Michael's story, the depth of depression that he went through and then choosing another dream. Maybe someone you know might need a share. And it also makes a big difference to us because we can't succeed without you. So please go ahead, like, review and share. On another note, I'm always searching for great success stories. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, or you'd like to nominate a guest, please contact me on our website at jeff-smith.com. You know, I really, really would love to hear from you. Thank you again, Michael Dedrich. You are amazing. I've got the Thank benefit. You. You're in tears. I can see. You're deeply I, I touched. doing the outro right now, I'm just having like this release and hearing you talk about this experience and sharing it with you, I, that I'm very, very emotional. I was hoping I was off camera, <laughs> but uh, you brought this out in me. Uh, you're absolutely brilliant as well and uh i wish you all the success and i hope more people listen to this uh, uh program because you're a brilliant interviewer as well and you are just worth gold as a person uh i love you man thank you so much i love you too michael you are amazing amazing well that's all for me thank you for listening and have a great day